I want to turn you this morning to two passages of Scripture, easy enough to find. The first will be in Matthew chapter 3, and we'll read here verses 13 through 17. Matthew chapter 3. beginning at verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. That word suffered there means he permitted it. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then if you'll turn to the first chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, we're going to read verses 29 through 34. John chapter 1, and beginning at verse 29. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is before me, or preferred before me, for he was before me. And John said that because as far as birth into this world, John was born a few months before the Lord Jesus, and yet he says, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is before him. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him. The same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. The day before the Lord's baptism, there was a delegation that was sent from the highest Jewish council, which is called the Sanhedrin the ruling Jewish council. They were rather interested in what was taking place because there were so many that were coming to John's baptism, John the Baptist, and uh, uh, he, of course, baptized many. And they were wondering what was taking place. So they came and actually questioned him earnestly as to who he was and why he baptized and they were rather disturbed. They were disturbed over the great attention that he was gathering. That day after that meeting with the Jewish 
I counsel. John saw a young man approaching him. This was taking place at a, call, a place that was called Bethabara and uh, at the Jordan River. A man approaches John. John's attention becomes riveted upon him as if his whole soul was flooded with some tremendous knowledge. Even John the Baptist would not come to know who Jesus Christ was unless God had made it known to him. Even he could not discern by nature who Christ was. But his soul was flooded with an incredible knowledge. We might call it a transcendent knowledge of who this young man was who approached him that day. This man was the whole reason for his ministry. The whole reason for the ministry that was given to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was himself the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. One given 700 years before by Isaiah. Another given 500, 4 to 500 years earlier in Malachi. This one John saw that day and who approached him at the Jordan River was, as we say, the reason for his ministry. This man that John saw was much, much more than a mere man. This man was the object, the subject, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that had prophesied the coming of Messiah and that Messiah would be God visiting this world. And so John the Baptist is called in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, the voice. He's the voice in the wilderness who cries, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And that word Lord in Isaiah is Jehovah, the God who is the God of redemption and salvation. And John was to prepare the way for the coming of Jehovah. Later on, a few hundred years later, the prophecy comes in Malachi chapter 3. God says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. That messenger is fulfilled in John the Baptist. All the purpose of old covenant prophecy and the whole reason for the new covenant in all of its unfolding was brought face to face that day with John the Baptist on the banks of the river Jordan. His name was Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't come from Jerusalem. He didn't come from the aristocracy. He came from a very small town in Galilee that was called Nazareth. He'd been brought up there, but he was brought up in a very poor family, himself learning a carpenter's trade. 
He did not come with an aura about him that marked him out as different from other men. He didn't come with anything outwardly by physical sight that would have shown him different from any other. He came in a flesh and blood body just like any other man. Matter of fact, Isaiah the prophet 700 years B.C. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 53 implies that there were few who would really behold him as to who he was in Israel. He says, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He says, who hath received our report? Who hath believed our report? In the second verse he says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing in Jesus of Nazareth that marked him different from anybody else by physical sight. There was nothing that showed up in him that by nature someone could discern as to who he was. Yet John the Baptist... John the Baptist, who was sent for this very purpose, who obviously didn't before know who he was, although we think indeed that he must have beheld him before. You see, John the Baptist's mother, her name was Elizabeth, and the Lord's mother, Mary, were cousins. Of course, when you read in the Gospels, you find out that Mary, when she was told in her confusion because she was a virgin that she was going to bear a child, and the angel Gabriel makes known to her who that child is, that holy thing, which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God, she went for three months to Elizabeth's house. We learn there that John the Baptist, who was in the womb of Elizabeth, jumped at joy, as it were, in the presence of Christ. But the Lord Jesus Christ was raised in Nazareth of Galilee. John the Baptist was raised in the hill country of Judea. So they may not have been in contact, maybe in a very limited sense. But he did not know who the Lord Jesus was until God made that known to him specifically. He was given a knowledge that was not natural, that he could not discern by mere human reason. God directly made known to him who the Lord Jesus Christ was. Or we, we marvel at the knowledge that must have flooded the soul of John the Baptist that day at the Jordan River. Marvel how he could have, could have controlled his emotions. God must have granted him a great deal of control. And then he, he gives the first public proclamation and declaration of who Jesus Christ is. 
And what he has to say supplies the theme for every truly God-sent preacher from that time to this. The Old Testament and all those prophecies, those wondrous prophecies in the Old Testament, even though they're so clear, multitudes of them, that show themselves fulfilled in Christ, given hundreds and thousands of years before his coming. The voice of prophecy in the Old Testament that pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Those Old Testament law and prophets were brought to their purposed end when the last of the Old Testament prophets identifies the king of the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 16 verse 16 says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. John the Baptist consummates that line of old covenant prophets. And yet he's greater than they because of the position that he had. The day before when the delegation came from the Jewish high council asking him who he was, are you the Christ? No, etc. He says to them, I am not the Christ. But now on the banks of that river when he sees Jesus of Nazareth he declares this is he this is he the kingdom of heaven had come and the reason the kingdom of heaven had come which John preached was because the king of heaven had come the king had come and had arise. The law and the prophets pointed to him. He was the one who fulfilled them. And he pointed to the preaching of John as to the time of the transition from the preparation of old to now the fulfillment that had come, fulfilling all those prophecies concerning the coming of the Son of God. So there's a sense in which John the Baptist was the very last of the old covenant prophets, but he is also the first of the new covenant preachers. That's why his baptism, given as our Lord Jesus explicitly said himself, is by the authority of heaven. God ordained it. And it continues, of course, in the Christian church as it did from the days of the Baptist until now. As the outward sign, picture, and emblem of an inward work that God has done and won by His grace. It was the office of John the Baptist to identify and testify to the Messiah who had come and present him to Israel. He was the way preparer. He was the voice in the wilderness that was to prepare the way of the coming of Jehovah. 
and present him. That was his task. And his ministry, therefore, would be very shortly concluded. It would be very short. A matter of fact, in the in the, the third chapter of John, in verses 30 and 31, we hear him. He says here, He, the Lord Jesus Christ, He must increase, but I must decrease. Then in verse 30, He says, He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He, referring to Jesus of Nazareth, he that cometh from heaven is above all. He came from Nazareth as a man. He came from heaven to Nazareth into human flesh. And the first thing, the first thing he says about the one he declared, this is he. The first words the Holy Spirit puts in the mouth of John the Baptist at the sight of the Lord Jesus point out the most prominent feature of his work, why he came, the work he was given to do in verse 29 of John chapter 1 again. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is the first thing the Baptist declares concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Even before he declares who the Lord Jesus is, he declares why he came. He declares what he is. He is the one God-given, God-appointed sacrificial lamb. With this sweeping statement, John shows that the whole Old Covenant sacrificial system was completed. It had been there to point forward to the coming of the true Lamb of God who alone can remove sin. There were many Old Covenant sacrifices. They were there to show that sin must be transferred to an innocent victim if one was to be saved by God's grace, if their sins were to be forgiven, then uh, an innocent victim must die in the stead of the sinner. That's when the old covenant priests put their hands upon uh, the lamb or the goat and confessed over them the sins of the people. But that was something that looked forward to the coming of the true lamb of God of the only one who can remove sin. And uh, the only one who could satisfy a divine justice that must judge sin. Now John is showing all of this is fulfilled in the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God 
which taketh away the sin of the world. Those old covenant sacrifices could only at best cover over a transgression for a brief period of time. They had to be continually redone. While the one true Lamb of God, by the one sacrifice of himself, would forever remove sin. That's really what we learn in the book of Hebrews. This man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He died. He rose from the dead. He ascended with all power in heaven and in earth. This one declaration as the Lamb of God bespeaks both his absolute submission to his Father the unresisting obedience by which he would submit himself to death and bear in himself the guilt of the sins of others, providing himself as the sacrifice and the one way to God who had been sinned against. He would submit to the most horrendous death ever like the lamb silent before those who would slay them only as God would make it known he alone must make it known only by then God revealing it and putting this knowledge in John the Baptist, could those words show the extensiveness of the Lord's redemption? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You see, to the Jews, so they thought, salvation was to their race only, to their religion alone. So that if anyone was going to come into a right relation with God, they had to become a Jew by religion. Those were called proselytes. But John is showing something else. John shows that salvation from sin through the one Lamb of God would extend to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. The Jews applied this word world in a very general sense. They applied it simply to Gentiles sometimes or to a large number of people, sometimes to the whole created order. Of course, the word world here is not to be pressed out of its context with a universal sense without any qualification. So would the words taketh away the sin of them have to be pressed in the same way which would leave a sense in which the rest of the scriptures then would have no meaning so the Lord's own words the Lord teaches about those whose sins are remitted he teaches about those who are saved by the grace of God he shows clearly enough that he's talking about a world who would be brought into being a world of believers and none other for instance, in John chapter 6, 
when he speaks of himself as the bread of life. In John chapter 6 and in verses 33 through 35, the Lord Jesus referring to himself says, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread, this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Of course, the application is only to those who believe, who trust Christ indeed. Redemption in Christ is extended way beyond the borders of the Jewish nation, extended to the world in the sense of every kindred, every tribe, every people, every nation, so that Christ is indeed the Savior of the world. In Revelation 5.9, John the Apostle is given to write, Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every nation and kindred and tongue and people. But the term also is general enough for this application. Whoever and wherever worldwide feels the guilt and the weight of sin and longs to be delivered from its guilt and bondage and to come to know the living and true God will find in the Son of God all that is needed for life and godliness. He is the life. He declares, I am the way. That is, I am the way to God. I am the way, the truth. He is the truth about God. He is the very revealing of God to us. And the life. There is no life apart from him. And apart from a living relationship with the living Lord. But I want you to address your attention in verse 29 of John chapter 1. To that word behold. Behold. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. You see, looking in Scripture has a very important meaning. It's not simply speaking of physical sight like you see me or see each other here this morning. John the Baptist, by physical sight, could not tell difference between Jesus of Nazareth and anyone else. But he saw something wondrous. He saw who he was. He recognized who he was. But that's a different kind of sight, a different kind of looking. In Scripture, looking, beholding, is often synonymous with faith or trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the act of trusting Christ alone. 
as the Son of God and as the sin-bearer which gives sight to the soul. They who believe, they see with the sight of soul that gives them a true vision of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and his marvelous redeeming grace which cannot come by human sight. By human knowledge, human reason, there's an incapability because of sin to behold who he is. And it might be that doctrinally or creedally someone can acknowledge a creed to be true, but it's only the work of God that gives a sight of who Jesus Christ is. It's only the grace of God operative and working in one that can bring one to behold in the sense in which Scripture speaks of looking or beholding. The world, of course, has a very cynical saying that seeing is believing. And in a sense, that's true in one regard, and in another regard it's not. The truly believing soul can rather invert that saying also to believing is seeing. God says in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look unto me and be ye saved. There was an incident in the Old Testament during the time of the Hebrews when the people in their rebellion were under God's wrath and they were punished for their sins and their rebellion. And yet God would provide a way that they could be delivered from that and healed from that. He instructed Moses to make a serpent out of brass, to put it upon a pole, and declares that whoever puts it in sight where all the twelve tribes could see that pole, if they would look. To put that serpent on a pole, and that whosoever would look, that was a look of faith, believing what God had said, Whosoever would look upon that brass serpent, that they would be healed. They would be healed of the bites they had received from serpents because of God's judgment. Strange as it might sound, that was God's method. He said, make the pole, the brass pole with the serpent on that pole, Put it where it can be beheld, and those who truly look upon that serpent shall be healed of the serpent bites. Why such a thing? Because sin is the greatest poison in us. Sin is that which separates us from God. Sin and rebellion and seeking our own way in disregard to God and his truth is poisonous. And it brings death. And yet God 
sent his son so that we would be saved by his grace if by his grace we're brought to look to Christ only and trust in him. So the Lord Jesus in John chapter 3 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's talking about the cross. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And one who knows themselves to be a sinner, infected, with the worst deadly thing there is. The whole reason death has come into the world. The whole reason for eternal separation from God, even in eternal punishment. Sin. God sent his Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. A wondrous thing indeed even those who come to know the Lord of glory they come to behold him by faith they come to recognize who he is they come to know him they come to love him because they realize he loved them and gave himself as the sacrifice for sin they come to trust him to look only to him this is why even in difficult trial when you study the history of the Christian church and the great persecutions and the sufferings that have come to those who have confessed that they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they trust him only, that he is their Lord, their Savior, that he is their all. This is why in the greatest of suffering and persecution, even in times that would bring death, those who see him by faith. Those who know him. When they're scoffed at. When they've been dealt with in very harsh ways. When many of the number has even been put to death at times. This is why they won't move from Christ. This is why they won't turn from him. Even in the times of the greatest difficulty. Peter wrote about it in 1 Peter 1, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than a gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, shall be found unto praise and honor and glory at the coming of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen by physical sight, whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not, Yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You see, those dear saints, those people of God, those redeemed ones, knew that they belonged to Christ. And though the world take their life from them, they cannot take their essential life, their eternal life that is in Christ, knowing him. John, by this word, behold, he points away from himself. He doesn't preach himself. 
He's the servant of another. He doesn't point to himself. He points away from himself. And says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John the Baptist didn't like to speak about himself. He didn't toot his own horn. He was there to exalt and magnify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He preached Christ. Just as Paul, the apostle, later would say to the Corinthians, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is none other who could bear sin away. There is none other who can cleanse eternally from sin and bring one to God. None other who could remove forever that very thing that separates from the living God. But John the Baptist and we who proclaim Christ can say, this is he. This is he. His name is Jesus. He is the complete fulfillment of what God promised in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah the one appointed of God, the Father, as Savior. He came from Galilee. He walked the banks of the Jordan. He was baptized by one who said, I have need to be baptized of thee and comest thou to me. What he did know about the Lord Jesus was he was completely sinless. None other were. And he would be the lamb without blemish, without spot. He was before John the Baptist, as John had said, even though John was born a few months before the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but he was before me. He came from eternity. He came, as John later said, from heaven. He came into this world to save sinners. He came on the great mission of salvation. And now John knows who he is. Now John has his soul flooded with the knowledge that we read in verse 34 of John chapter 1. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Well, on a doctrinal note, for those who are students of the Scripture, 
John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You notice sin is in the singular, not in the plural. The sin of the world, obviously, is a transgression, and that was the transgression of Adam, who plunged the whole of the human race into sin. And the nature of Adam was passed to all of his descendants. That's why everyone born into this world, excepting the one who was born of a virgin, is born in sin. The nature of Adam is passed to all of his descendants. So that you and I were born with the transgression of Adam in our bosom. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Wherefore is by one man, referring to Adam, the first, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Then we were born with his nature, born in sin. We weren't born a blank slate. We were born rebellious. We were born self-seeking, self-centered. We were born haters. We were born wanting our own way. We were born in sin. It's this which plunged us into the deep abyss of ungodliness and the prospect of eternal punishment. Adam's disobedience was ours. His nature became ours. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, we learn in Romans 5.19. The many, the multitude of sins that plague us are but the proof that we're guilty in Adam. The law was given that the offense, singular, might abound, as in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. But there came another one, another. He's called the last Adam, and that's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. The last Adam, even the one John identified on the banks of the Jordan. And those who come to him those who believe in Him, those who trust Him, those who give up any thought of their own merit and trust Him because He died in the sinner's place and was raised again from the dead because He died for sinners. And those who trust Him and trust themselves to Him are accounted righteous, not because they are in themselves, but God grants them and gives them his righteousness, putting it to their account just as much as if they themselves were perfectly righteous. But it's not their righteousness produced. It's his given to them. One man's obedience brings righteousness. So he not only takes away the sin of the world, in a general sense, but also in a particular sense. He can take it away from you. 
He can take it away from me. By marvelous grace, by God's wondrous and marvelous grace, when you're brought to Him, to trust Him, to believe Him, to entrust yourself to Him. And then, by the wondrous abundance of God's grace, He removes every transgression who himself bear our sins in his own body on the tree. He cleanses from all sin. What a wondrous word that those who are brought to know the Son of God are cleansed from all sin, all transgression, given the wondrous gift of eternal life, belong to him, when your time comes to leave the world, it will come. If he tarries. You be assured that you belong to him. That you're going to be in his presence. That God has saved you for himself by his grace. If by his grace you're brought to know the Son of God. To behold the Lamb for sinners slain. To look to him and trust in him alone. So rivet your attention upon the one that John the Baptist was riveted upon that day at the Jordan River. And believe that glorious description of why the Son of God came to be the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb for sin. And his redeeming blood will cleanse you. And his redeeming love will flood your soul. And there's nothing like that on the face of this earth in coming to know him. You see, if that's true with Jordan, I have no problem baptizing. Baptism doesn't remove his sins what it does is become a picture that God himself has drawn a picture of something that is essential to salvation and that is that we must be brought into union with the very death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ the death of Christ the blood of Christ washes away sin cleanses away sin the life of Christ becoming that which enables us to outlive this new life that God gives in Christ. Baptism is the picture of that. It's the picture of what has already taken place and by faith being joined to Christ in his death, in his resurrection, belonging to him. It is the confession, I'm no longer my own. It is the picture that all my sins have been put away by the blood of God's Son. And I believe and trust Him and Him only. That's what baptism is about. It becomes very important because whoever 
is buried in the waters of baptism and symbolically brought up to represent newness of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's something, Jordan, you need to remember the rest of your life that you're confessing that you died with Christ. You're not your long, any longer your own. You belong to him. And yet in that you'll find your freedom. Your freedom from sin. Your freedom to trust God. Your freedom to serve him and to love others and give this gospel to them. We're going to have Jordan come up and in a minute here you don't have to come up here we'll, <laughs> or be on camera but we'll have him come up here and uh, then hopefully um, those who would like to see this baptism live which I know I think would be um, Bob and Carol particularly if they're able to get this on Facebook uh, will be able to see it live today and then it will be also recorded it will be kept on there so others like Lydia can see it I know who wanted to be here for the baptism but is uh, on her way to youth camp uh, so may God be pleased to bless the ministry of his word his gospel and be pleased to bring some to see what they've never seen to behold whom they've never beheld and to come to know the one who is the way the truth and the life Daniel you can go ahead and stop the live stream now if you like Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord? 
grace of God to serve him with all that is in you, to forsake the world, to mortify your sinful nature, and to follow Christ, endeavoring to live in God's life. Yes. Do you agree to submit in the Lord to the government of this church, feeding wisdom, willing to receive admonition, and correction in doctrine or life should it become necessary? Yes. Do you understand that attendance upon the ministry of the Word of God is essential to your spiritual growth and maturity? Very much so. Non-attendance for an extended period of time, unless there are providential conditions bringing them down, will bring our matter to about six months. We do not attend, we do not retain. Anybody want to ask a question? Thank you, Hughes. Always good. 